Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm here with Elias. We're coming back after Thanksgiving holiday. I know we spent a lot of time talking about um, Black Friday, Gray Thursday, all those things. And one thing I noticed this year, Elias, is um, years past, my wife had always, they'd always go out on Thursday, Gray Thursday. But this year, there are a bunch of big name places that close. Like, I don't think Target was open at all on Thanksgiving. And that's actually a big change because that's where my wife would go shopping at five, six o'clock. As soon as football was rolling up, she was going out shopping to Target. And that, that was a big change. Yeah, Target, um, I know this year. Target wasn't the only one. There was a lot of stores closed this year on Thanksgiving. Well, I, um, honestly, even, uh, I think Shields. Didn't Shields have a big commercial, too, on TV about why they were closed for Thanksgiving? I'm not sure I should know that since I'm a very loyal, loyal shopper at Shields. But. I mean, truth be told, I kind of think it's a good thing if we're closing on holidays. I don't think we need to have Thanksgiving mixed with a bunch of Christmas shopping or whatever. The perceptions that you need to get on Thanksgiving night. And what's really interesting and kind of why I mentioned this is for years we've set records on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And this article came through on Forbes. Um, Cyber Monday sales fall for the first time ever. So it's the first time ever that sales fell year over year on Cyber Monday. I have a theory on this I came up with when I was reading it. Let's hear it. So do you think possibly with the last year of like, or not not even a year anymore, but like year and a half of um, like COVID and everything that people just got so used to maybe online shopping? to do stuff that before they would go to the store for. And then when Cyber Monday came around, like just people had already bought, like people didn't wait until Cyber Monday. People have just been doing more online shopping and shopping in general. And the other thing with all the stimulus money that we had throughout COVID, do you think maybe people have just like, they bought the stuff they want because they had, like we know savings rates are up and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know that I guess that was my theory when I was reading through it and thinking about it was, well, maybe it's just people are they're full. People have what they want. They don't need all the stuff on Cyber Monday like they used to. I think that's a combination. I think I'd agree with a lot of that. Um, The other thing that I noticed this year is it didn't seem like the deals were that great. It wasn't like the smash out blowout deal that you had to go show up on Black Friday or Cyber Monday and get and I actually think that's a side effect of what you mentioned with COVID and supply chain issues. If demand is already super high, why in the world do we have to give great sales? We'll just charge full price. And this article actually talks about there are a lot of deals in October. So the consumers weren't waiting around for the big shopping days on Cyber Monday and Black Friday. And I think you're right. Everybody has more money. Wages are, I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people are better off today than they were a year ago. Um, wages are wages are higher. They've been sitting at home. So they've been shopping online and they probably have bought every single thing that they really want. And if it's not a smash deal, why do we have to get it on Cyber Monday? Maybe they'll just wait till it gets closer to Christmas. And maybe just the novelty of Cyber Monday starting to wear off as people have gotten significantly more comfortable shopping and ordering and doing business in an online fashion, which was all created or enhanced, I should say, probably not created, but enhanced 
by COVID related COVID related related measures. Yeah, and do you think maybe to go on kind of tag on to your point there about the sales weren't as good? Do you think some of the inflation we've seen has something to do with that? Where like I, com- companies are thinking, well, people are getting used to paying these higher prices, so let's see if we can make the deals. We'll still have a deal, but not like the deals we had in the past and make a little bit more money. Well, I mean, that's part of it, but let's think about it. There's not many cars out there today. So if a year ago I had a thousand cars in my inventory and I needed to reduce my inventory, what do I do? Blow out sale. Blow out sale. Black Friday, big well, today, sale. Yeah. I've got nine cars and everybody wants them and I can't get more of them. Why am I going to give a blowout sale? Right. I'm just going to charge full price or a small sale to to generate interest. Um, it reminds me of a buddy of mine. So I have a buddy of mine who's a wholesaler. And this is a year ago. You know him. It's Corey or Jamie. Mm-hmm. Jamie, the wholesaler. Yep. And he uh, he goes, you know, I just bought the most expensive Yukon, Denali, or Tahoe, one of those two cars in the state of Iowa. I go, oh, how, how and why did you do that? Well, if you know anything about wholesalers, they drive a lot. Like they're on the road, they're driving all across Iowa, Nebraska, all over, seeing seeing the people that they support. Well, his transmission or something went out in his old Tahoe or Yukon, whatever it was. He had a few hundred thousand miles, so the most economical thing to do is just get a new one. Yeah. Well, when he went to the dealership, he asked, "Well, what are the deals?" He's like, "There's no deals." This is the only car like this in the state of Iowa. Yeah. This is the deal. So the deal is that one sitting there. The deal That's is your only choice. The deal was you get a car. Yeah. Where think back three or four years ago. I remember I bought my wife a new car four years ago. What was that awesome deal? It was, it was like in December. They were trying to get rid of the late model car. It's like ten dollars or $15,000 off the sticker. I mean, awesome deal. He paid full price, no discounts, no rebates, nothing. So it's the same thing that's happening with not having deals on you know Black Friday and Cyber Monday. There were still deals, just not the ones that people perceived that they had to go do. The, the second thing with Black Friday, I think there are a certain amount of people who just didn't want to mess with being around that many people. I mean, my wife, my wife, another part of my theory. Yeah. My wife didn't go shopping on Black Friday. Usually they do it. Just it's something to do this year. She's like, yeah, I don't really want to go do it. And I don't know whether that's an effect of I'm getting everything I want online anyway. Why do I need to go to the store? I just don't want to be around people like I'm not sure what all that is, but I think that was odd. And it was an observation that I made about my personal family. You know what it probably was? She probably wanted to spend more time with you on the holiday. That was probably the main motivation. Why wouldn't you? That's what I'm saying. She I, just I wanted to be with you more. I agree. And here's the thing. I don't want people to think that Cyber Monday was a bomb, right? It still remains the largest single shopping day of the year by far. Uh, the peak hours for Cyber Monday are actually at 11 p.m. Eastern time. Consumers spent on average, this is crazy, $12 million every minute. Yeah, because what the total was ten point seven billion for There's the day. There's been twelve million dollars every single minute. It's that's an amazing. Awesome. It's actually amazing. So yeah, that's awesome. I thought that'd be interesting. Interesting as we're just coming out of the holiday. One of the things recently that started to not royal markets, but you know, bring some volatility back in the markets. We haven't seen that much here in the last month or so. Is we have the new variant out there, but. Yesterday, so today's December 1st, yesterday or the day before, uh, Jerome Powell 
came out and did his annual or the the regular Fed meeting and talked about inflation. It's the first time that he's kind of removed the word um, transitory from the language. Yeah. So I have a okay. Here's my first question: transitory. How? I mean, I know that means temporary, temporary. but okay. But how do we? How does our society define transitory? Because to me, going on for to me like. Two, three, four years could be transitory, but maybe, may like in America, if something lasts for longer than a year or two, is that then considered long term? Well, the word's arbitrary. It's transitory. Nobody really knows. And well, that's what I'm so, saying. Like we haven't, de- no one's defined an amount of time that we're going to say it's not transitory anymore. I think the assumed time was as things from COVID got back to normal, right? As supply chains got straightened out and all these different things that are being caused or was a cause of the initial shutdown as those things got back to normal. But as we've seen the Delta variant that slowed it. And I think what they're starting to realize is maybe it's not quite so transitory as they originally thought. And what I mean by that, and if you think about it, wages are up. Well, Part of what will drive inflation are higher wages. As people have more money, they're willing to spend more for what they want. Do you think anybody's taking a pay cut? Right now? No, there's not even. In in three years, are people going to work for less money? I mean, if you think about what there's a a hard press to get the minimum wage in America, $15 an hour. Well, that's clearly going to cause some level of inflation, right? Yes. And the, the term there is living wage. Well, okay, so the first is we get the minimum wage to $15. Whether I'm for that or against that's completely irrelevant to the conversation, but I just want to think through this inflation idea. So we get the minimum wage to $15. Well, then what about the people who are on Social Security with a $1,200 a month check? And we just told everybody that we need to have a minimum wage of $15 because that's a living wage. Right. Well, if, then, they, if they don't get a similar type raise, then they're taking a pay cut. We meet with lots of people. There's a lot of people that are getting thousand, seventeen hundred dollars or whatever from from Social Security. To be the equivalent of a fifteen dollar minimum wage, the minimum check would be twenty five hundred dollars. That's a massive increase in income and cash going in people's pockets. And I'm not saying people are doing that. I'm just thinking this through. Because every time we make a change and we do something it kind of snowballs into something different, right? Because how could we have a minimum or a, you know, a living wage for one set of people, but not everybody? Well, right. It's yeah, it should be for everyone. But if that happens, yeah. if that happens, then more people have more money in their pocket. They're going to spend more. So why would we think it's actually transitory? Why do we think that prices will go down? If I'm charging eight dollars for a widget, the only way I'm going to charge less for that widget is if my supply is so much higher than my demand, which means now I have 2,000 widgets and I'm only selling 50 a year. Well, yeah, then my prices are going to come down because i got to get rid of the widget. But as long as demand is equal to the supply, why would prices come down? And I just want people to think this through versus just saying, hey, we believe it's transitory. We believe that it's long-term. Well, let's just think it through. When was the last time you went somewhere and saw something for a significantly less price? Yeah, that's not happening right now. Why would the company do that? Why would any company do that? Okay, and so then what about 
so here's my other thought on it. Okay, so we have all these supply chain constraints and we haven't got supply back to, you know, everyone's talked about all the, the shipping containers in the shipping yards that have all the goods that aren't getting unloaded and delivered everywhere. Well, wouldn't it, I, to me, I guess a question I asked the other day to someone is, wouldn't it be easier to wrap our mind around inflation and how long it's going to last or how high it's going to be if we got that figured out first? Like, isn't that a big unknown to, I mean, how much is that impacting everything? And how do you, def, how do you define transitory or long-term when that's still an issue that's out there? It's a good good point about the shipping lies. And one thing, so I pulled up a chart. I got this off of uh, FreightWaves.com, which analyzes shipping prices, reliability, all those different things. The medium delay on voyages from China to L.A., which is a pretty common shipping situation, I would think, has increased by 425%. 425%. The delays. The average right. delay went from 2.5 days to over 13, Okay. The price has went from just over a thousand dollars, and they're just putting this in thousand dollars to six thousand six seventy. So it's like a six hundred percent increase in the price to ship. Why, if they can charge that, why is it going to go down in value? I mean, why are they going to lower prices at any point? If I'm a shipper and I can charge, you know, five thousand dollars, let's just say per unit, whatever the unit is, why am I going to charge 2,500? The only way I'm going to do that is if all these other people are becoming more price competitive and all the freight's getting moved. What's the problem with the freight getting moved? We have to have people to move it. There's nobody to move it. We have a client. He owns a trucking company. There's nobody to move the freight. Right. So that. So I think the whole point but of it this, is. So, okay. Is COVID still hanging that up though? I mean. I just don't, people don't want to drive. I can't think of a worse job than being a long haul trucker. Okay. So, but three years ago, there was, we didn't have the supply chain. Well, there was no backlog. How long does it take to get caught up? Think about what happened when, when COVID came through, you have a company that's making widgets. Well, I'm going to stop making widgets because I don't know if anybody's going to buy my widget. I'm using widgets as a general general term. Well, okay, now I know everybody wants to buy my widget. How long does it take to get caught up if I shut my plant down? And I think what we don't realize in the United States, there's still shutdowns across the world. There are countries treating COVID differently all across the world. Mm -hmm. They're not wide open, ready for business. So while in America, we see things as fairly normalized with the exception of mass and some testing, there's no company shut down. We're all open for business. It's not how it is across the world. So I think we have a bigger lens. That's still part of the problem. I think my point is inflation's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. I would expect inflation to go higher. And we went and I pulled actually some experts and how bad they think they'll or how bad inflation will get. And I don't think anybody thinks it's going to run away, but they definitely think that um, inflation is going to be higher for longer. Um, so Jeremy Siegel, he's a professor. Um, a finance at the Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania. It's a world-renowned business school. Um, he believes that over the next uh, five years, we'll see cumulative inflation between 20 and 25%, excuse me, over the next three to four years. So think about 
that we've historically the last probably five to 10 years been running around 2%. 2% inflation is the Fed's target rate, right? We want 2% inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, 20 to 25 over three to four years, that's somewhere around six to 7% a year. And that's where we're at today is about 6%, um, which does a couple of things and primarily affects people. Not It affects people all over, but if you're in, an investor, and you're an income investor, you know, the gentleman I just met with, he's got bonds, he's an income investor, he needs some safety. If interest rates go up, that has an adverse effect on bond prices. So if we remember back to Finance 101, interest rates and prices are like a teeter-totter as rates rates rise. Are you going to do the, the... Have I done that before? The pen teeter-totter. Have I done that before? Oh, yeah, I've seen you do it I mean, a bunch I've of probably times. done it like every single meeting. Um but what's interesting, and, and this is this is where you have to kind of decide as an investor um, where you're going to get your advice. I can go to the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Kathy Woods, who's a famed stock picker. I mean, yes, she is known to be one of the best of our generation. Thinks the current inflation will burst and is overblown. She predicts. Technology innovation such as AI and robotics will lead to productivity gains, which should help lower prices in the long run. Well, could could coincidentally enough, Kathy Woods invests strictly in long-term growth companies. Well, if interest rates go up, what are they gonna what companies are getting hurt hurt the most? Yeah, it's gonna your, be the growth high growth companies. companies. Yeah. It brings their multiple down. So I just think it's interesting how you can have two separate sides of this coin and it just shows nobody knows. So, right. So I do think that I, and I don't have an, I really don't have an opinion either, either way on how long it will last or how high it will be. So I do think some of Kathy, some of her arguments for like deflationary causes with technology and then robotics and consumers being able to like another good argument consumers have basically instant access to prices when you're shopping online you can just price shop by looking at a couple different stores um and i do so her point about once companies start to fill their orders and they're kind of doubling and tripling orders it made me think about um one of our clients we met with who one of his roles at his company is filling the inventory. The steel inventory? Yes. And he talked about how he's never going to let this happen again, where he has customers that need product and he doesn't have it because he couldn't get it, which highlights kind of her point is they're going to overorder, even though we'll be ca- we'll be catching up and overordering at the same time. Um, and when we had that conversation, I remember thinking, I wonder how many other people managing inventory have his same mentality. And it's probably a lot because especially in the business world, no one wants to let down a customer that they have. So then you get to this point where you have to let your customers down, but it's out of your control. So what's the solution? Well, I'm going to increase my inventory because I do not want this to happen again. Um, and I'm not saying that that's going to, I'm just highlighting that point. And I do, I think it's insightful. I'm not saying that's going to stop inflation. Um, I think it could, it could help if that, if we run into that situation, but we still have to get the first problem 
solved. The supply chain has to get back in working order, which that's proving to be a very large challenge. It's the whole widget analogy we just said. You stop making widgets. Well, you stopped ordering steel. Client stopped ordering steel because they didn't yeah, know there was what they were no going to need. And then right. when they needed it. There was no steel to order. There was no steel to order. So he was ordering eight months out just as much as he could get because he needed it. Didn't know what his company is going to need. And then eventually when the demand normalizes and your supply is too high, that's maybe when you'll see price decreases. But then it goes back to my core question. If they don't have to lower the price. Will they? Because that's the only way inflation moderates is if they don't lower the price. So now you have this inventory right. of steel that you bought and you've been sitting on for, you bought it at the highest price you could buy it at because you needed to catch up. Well, you're not just going to let it go and lower the price. You're going to try to at least recoup what you have in it until it just becomes a completely dead asset and you can no longer sell it at that price. So I, it just, I don't think inflation's... I don't think it's going to get crazy, but at the same time, I don't think we're going to see lower prices on things, just like homes. All these homes are getting bought up. We've seen the rapid increase in home prices. Everybody says, well, I'm going to wait till the prices come down. Who says prices are coming down? I know. I've heard that from a few people. People assume that someone's going to sell their house. Think about it. You just bought a house for 400000 What's going to cause you to sell it for less than 400000 I mean, the people think this through. If you had, like, if you had to sell it because you were gonna, your house was gonna get foreclosed on, like, right. So this is where people's recency bias is coming into play from two thousand nine. Well, home prices come down. They don't understand what really happened in two thousand and nine. We had a mass amount of loans that basically weren't underwritten, or my favorite terminology, the ninja loan. No income, no job application, or no income, no job, no problem. Here you go. Here we go. <laughs> that happened in 09. I wish they still had those. I would like <laughs> I somebody to go to the consumer and ask them, the last loan you took, was it an easy process? It was an easier process today than it was in 2007. And I guarantee you, every single person is going to tell you, it was more more difficult today to get that loan than it was in 2007. And I have more income, more money, and more finances. The only yeah. place I see this red flag, and this is, I've been getting calls from where my mortgage lender's at, the cash out refi. Okay, right? well, yeah, why, why is that? Well, you know, they're coming in saying, well, you bought this house for half a million bucks and now it's worth 750. So let's refi the whole thing. And give you a 200000 of cash to put in your pocket. Because that was happening in 07. But the difference is they're still underwriting that loan based on the financials of the person. So back to my original point. What would make a person buy a house for 400000 and then take a loss on it at three hundred? Because that's the only way prices are coming down. It's yeah, going to have to be some very, very, very big event for that to actually happen. Yeah, so you'll get a kick out of this. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and he, I don't know if I should say a lot, but he did what some people are doing. So he sold his house because he could get more money than he ever thought he could get for it. And he can't find a house to buy. Well, then the other day he goes, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the real estate crash. He's and (laughs) dude, the way he said it, he said like something like, so I shared with him our, 
remember the article about Zillow that we talked about yeah. on an episode? Yep. So I shared with him, well, that's maybe this is kind of interesting. So maybe I think this might be a good indicator that maybe prices will slow. I never said it was going to crash, but that's what he that's heard because he that's what he wanted to hear. And so then he goes, as I predicted, the market's going to crash and then I'm going to buy my house. And I just said, dude, if you want to buy a house, and this is speculation too, because I do think real estate prices will either stay or continue ticking up. To moderate. Long. Right. And they will moderate, but over the long term, real estate will appreciate. Um, and I told him, if you really want to buy a house, just go buy it. But if you're going to try and time the real estate market, like that's the same as trying to time the stock market. If you need a home and you want one, find what you can afford and buy it and just pay the price it costs. So I've got a good point about that, Elias. One thing he's not doing is he's he's discounting the fact that he's assuming that interest rates are going to remain where they are because as interest rates go up, his ability or his borrowing capacity goes down. I'm assuming he's young, so he's not writing a check. Correct. Well, interest right. rates, he's going to take a mortgage, a 30-year probably. So, yeah. yeah, he might wait for the real estate crash, but let's say it comes and he's going to buy a $400,000 house and that house goes to three fifty. But interest rates go from three to four and a half. Yeah, from an actual equity building standpoint, was right. he better off? Probably not. And I, right. I didn't run the math on it, but he's discounting the fact he's – He's making this assumption that something bad's going to happen and all of the other variables are going to remain as they are today. Right. And he's also assuming that the article we talked about, Zillow stopping their home purchase program, is an indicator that the market will crash. And it's very possible that they just stopped doing it for all the reasons they said that they were getting too extended too far and they don't have enough labor to complete their projects. And you want to know what he is underestimating and never took into account when he says there's going to be a housing crash? Well, he's what that he has a crystal ball and he actually knows or well, yeah, that's one. But two, and nobody talks about this. What about the five million apartments and homes are already short in America? Like for. It's supply and demand. If there are more people that need a place to live and he's one of them. Yeah. Why would we believe that there's going to be a crash in the real estate market? People can afford I, the homes they're purchasing based upon wages and interest rates. So yeah, I think it goes back to just because you want something to happen doesn't mean it will happen. And I, I pulled this article up because we've talked about this. This was um, September 24th. Or September 14th, 2021 on CNBC. America's short more than 5 million homes and builders can't make up the difference. So until right, we get to the point where the, <clears throat> there's more supply than demand, you why would there be pressure on home prices? There just wouldn't be. I've thought about doing the same thing as your buddy. Get more from my house. I ever thought I'd get. You know, my wife says, where are we going to live? Right. <laughs> where are you going to live? Where am I going to live? <laughs> yeah. Gonna build a, you're gonna build your man shed that you want, and then the family will just live there. Well, I she'll go for that. I think I think code in the count in this in the Lynn County is if you can have a shed with living quarters, it has a parcel of a farm or something. As long as it's not bigger than 800 square feet. Oh, really? So you think I could <laughs> shove them into 800 square feet? Yeah, she'll go for that. Um, but and I then think the other the other thing I want to add on about that article. So home builders can't make it up. Well, there's also, I've also read other research and articles that 
there's not an, the problem. The reason home builders can't catch up is there's not enough. So we don't we don't have enough people that build houses to start to tackle into um, tackle the supply problem to get to the supply we need to help out the demand. So I'm yeah I, I'm with you. I agree. I I think the data suggests um, there's not going to be much pressure on uh, on housing prices. Um, but and I think I think the other thing it's more of a I think it's like my conversation with my friend. It's a good example of someone can hear something and they're going to hear what they want to hear and not what you're actually saying. Or like I shared an article with him and he, he read it and his, it goes back to like bias thinking, right? His biases are having, he's reading it and thinking one thing I'm reading it and I'm thinking a totally different thing. Most articles you can skew however you want to meet your narrative. That's so right. let's end the show. Something cool. Molly gave me this article, highest paid dead celebrities. Have you read it? Because if you haven't read it, I want you to guess who made the most money in 2021 as a celebrity who's passed away. Have you read it? Uh, I yeah, I looked through it. I don't I don't remember who was the highest, but I know it's, do you want okay. me to guess? Or? I want you to guess because I know who I guessed it was and I was off. I think he was third or fourth. My guess was probably Michael Jackson. Yeah, so my uh, I was going with Michael Jackson or Prince were the two yeah. people I thought. I figured Michael Jackson. I didn't really think of Prince. Just, you know, there's always been so much talk about Michael Jackson, how all this money still comes into his um, into his family every year based upon, you know, and he's been dead for however a long time. Yeah. Um, but he's not number one. Or Walt Disney. I remember thinking about Walt Disney. but um, Where's he at on the list? I didn't even see him on here. But number one is a guy named Roald Dahl. I didn't even know who this was until I kind of read the synopsis. But he's the one who wrote Willy, uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Remember, do you ever watch that show? Oh, yeah. The, do you yep. like the original or the one that was made recently with? Uh, I, I actually I like both of them. I thought they're both good. They're so, both good movies, especially for the time that they were made. His estate, he's been dead for 21 years. His estate this year made $513 million. I'm trying to figure this out because I'm like, I don't know who the guy is. You'd think he'd be just a total common person. Well, his family, Dolls, family, and heirs sold um, basically his story to Netflix for $513 million. Bucks. And there's going to be a sequel. Uh in 2023. So I'm actually kind of excited to see the sequel to Charlie and the chocolate factory. I always thought that was a fun movie to watch, but you were right at number two, Elias Prince was number two. He made $120 million this year. Can you imagine making $120 million and you're not even here? I know. That's what I was thinking. I was like, these guys are making way more money than almost everyone. And they're not even alive. Bob Marley made 16 million. 13th on the list was John Lennon at 12 million. Luther Vandross, 21 million. I mean, this is just a lot of money for people. But it just goes to show they built Elvis Presley made 30 million. They built such a name and publicity and popularity for themselves that their legacy just kind of lives on forever. And and honestly, why would these people, why would the amount of money they, they earn change? Especially if you were a singer or like Dr. Seuss, he was number five on this list at 35 million. I'm still reading Dr. Seuss books. My wife, we, re- my wife bo- refuses to read the Dr. Seuss books. Why? Well, cause they're all tongue twisters and she doesn't want to do that. So she won't read them. I have to read them all. Right. But that's why they're, uh, that's why they're so good for kids because of all the rhyming. 
And that's why he makes $35 million. Right. He's not here. Right. <laughs> um, so I just thought it'd be fun to, uh, to mention. And then the last one on the list who, um, seems like this time of year, everybody starts to watch, but Charles Schultz, who is a creator of peanuts and Charlie Brown and all the Charlie Brown TV shows that, um, the kids like to watch. Although I'll be honest, my kids don't really enjoy the Charlie Brown shows. I don't know why. Um, it's I can't, just kind I can't, of an old school cartoon. Right? I can't get them to watch Charlie Brown's Christmas. I can get them to watch the Grinch. They love the Grinch, but Charlie Brown's Christmas is—they don't want anything to do with it. Really? My well, my oldest one likes it. We—it's on the TV every year around Christmas time. Yeah, I—I I can't believe we're already talking about Christmas. Um, that's around the corner, which I'm sure we're gonna have some cool Christmas shows coming up. But um, with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you need any help with the financial plan or you need more information from us. You can get us at btwellshow.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.